If you've got a Bible, you want to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. We started a new series of messages last week entitled Ecclesia, which is the Greek term for assembly or church in the New Testament. Uh, and what, we've, what we're doing over these next several weeks is we want to, to recover who we are. Because we said last week, before the church ever does anything, it is something. Okay, before it ever commits one act of ministry, it is a receiver of God's mercy. So God gives us an identity in Him before He ever sends us out to accomplish a single thing. And so this morning we continue in that vein of messages looking at who we are and seeing how that might inform what we do as a church body. Now, I don't know about you, but living in this community um, and getting up in the mornings, uh, sometimes earlier than I want to, in order to make sure I get a run-in before my day starts, being out and about in the community, taking my kids this summer uh, to the pool, along with my wife, to the community pools, what I've begun to see of being a resident of fate now for seven years uh, is that there is a growing sense of diversity within our community. Right there, I see more, more and more people who are less and less like me as I'm out running, as I'm out at the pool in different places. As our community grows, it's becoming less homogenized and more diversified. And I, don't know, for, I for one, want to celebrate that. Um, that as it grows in diversity, there's all kinds of peoples that God's bringing from all kinds of places. In fact, if you look at the forecast of the North Texas Demographic Association, they say that by 20... 30 that fate would be home to 25,000 people well I think they're a little behind because fate now is almost 17,000 burgeoning on 18,000 residents here and those people that God's bringing from all kinds of places are becoming more and more and more diverse and if God is bringing a more diversified type of person into our community then it must mean that our churches must aim and look to be more diversified as well but the reality is is that God before God ever says do this he says this is what you are before he ever says diversify he says you are diversified (laughs) and in fact in our text this morning in first Peter chapter 2 in verse 9, we're actually going to be in this text for the next four weeks looking at these, these descriptors that are given to tell us who the church is. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 is our text. It'll be on the screen if you don't have it in front of you, and you can read along. But Peter is writing a letter to a church in his day and time which had been persecuted by the authorities because they had adopted Christ as Lord and Lord alone. They would not say Caesar is Lord. They would not bend the knee to the Roman Empire. Therefore, they were ostracized from their culture. Many of their families abandoned them. And so they were legitimately like aliens and exiles living in a foreign land. And so Peter says, here's how you ought to live as an alien and exile. This is who you are. Here's how you live. That's the theme of the book of 1 Peter. And this particular section is talking about the church in general, the church collective, and what she should look like as aliens and exiles in the places in which she finds herself. And he says this in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of the darkness into His marvelous light. There's four descriptors that Peter gives to the church there. We're going to take the first one this week and consider what it means for the church to be a chosen race. Because Peter says the church is a chosen race. And what Peter means by that is this. 
that the church is a new kind of people, a new race of people, a new family, a new people from all kinds, all races, all families, and all the peoples of the earth. Right? So it's a new kind from among all kinds. It's a new, it's a new people that's made up of all peoples. It's a new race that in- incorporates all races of peoples on the planet. And I want you to know this has been God's intention from the very foundation of creation. Okay, If you go back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, whenever our first parents fall, because they want to be like God and elevate themselves to His platform and position, what you see is that not only does that sever their relationship to God, but it also, not only do they face the image of God in them, but they begin to destroy the relationships around them. In fact, after the first sins committed in Genesis 3 and sin enters the world, in Genesis 4 you find the first murder as one brother slays another. That rhymed. I didn't necessarily intend for it to, but it was kind of cool. So one brother kills another. All right, You find the first murder. By Genesis 6, things had gotten so bad that God says, I need to push reset by flooding the world, starting over with Noah and his family, who really didn't do any better than what came before them. Noah wakes up drunk in a tent with his, his children there doing strange things. Okay, And so you find that they don't really do much better. And so by Genesis chapter 11, you find that humanity is now gathering together. They're building a city on this plain. And as they build this city, they're building a tower, a citadel in the middle of the city to ascend to the heavens so that they can what, the text says, make a name for themselves. They want to be someone. They want to be like God, ascend to God's level. And God says, listen, if they accomplish this, there's nothing that they won't be able to band together to do, so we've got to do something about this. And so God comes down, and up to that point, the Bible says, they'd all spoken one language. And so God comes down, and He confuses their languages, and He scatters them to the ends of the earth. And as He confuses their languages, and new languages emerge, you know what happens? New cultures emerge, new tribes emerge, new peoples emerge, new races emerge, new nations emerge. And yet, in Genesis 12, the very next chapter of the Bible, whenever God calls Abram, from the land from Ur of the Chaldeans, and he says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bless you so that what? You and your descendants would be, your family would be a blessing to who? The nations, the people who've been scattered to the ends of the earth. So that Abraham would be a blessing, his family, his, his, his posterity would be a blessing to all the peoples and all the nations, all the tribes, all the tongues, and all the cultures. And listen, throughout redemptive history or the story of the Bible, what you see is that God's intention is to put an end to the hostility between nations and usher in peace among all peoples on the face of the earth. It's prophesied in places like Isaiah chapter 19, verses 22 to 25. Listen to what Isaiah writes. It says, And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord, and they will listen. He will, he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria. These, these sworn enemies right, will trade with each other. They will pass to and fro. And he says, Israel in that day, or, or, or no, he goes on to say, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians, and vice versa. In that day, verse 24 of Isaiah 22, 
Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and the Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. In other words, Isaiah prophesies about a day that would come in the future in which you would have Assyrians and Egyptians and Israelites worshiping together of the same God, living in peace and harmony with each other, no longer hostility and war. And listen, I want to tell you that the way God fulfills this prophecy is through the sending of His Son, through the coming of the person of Jesus Christ. Because if you fast forward to the end of the story... You come to Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, whenever God opens up the heavens and gives John a vision into the throne room, and this is what he sees. He sees the throne of God surrounded by these creatures and elders who are giving praise to the Lord. And they see the one like a lamb who has been slain on the throne. And they say to this in Revelation 5.9, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. See, in Isaiah, you see there's a day that's coming in which the people of God would not be related by their racial stock. Or the blood that ran through their veins. And in Revelation 5, you see they'd be related by the blood of another and by a redemptive sacrifice that was offered on their behalf for every people, every tribe, every nation, every culture, every tongue, every language. And listen, in Revelation, that day we see that the day that's coming has begun to dawn even now in the church age. As God is drawing together all the peoples, kinds and families and races of the earth and binding them together to make a new people, a new race, a new kind of people. And in Peter, in the text we just read, we see that this new people is the church of Jesus Christ, a chosen race where peoples who were segregated and separated from each other are now bound together to each other to God by faith in Christ. Last week we talked about how the church is a spiritual family, a radically diverse spiritual family. We didn't have time to go into much of what I want to say this morning, so I just kind of put it on pause and brought it back again. It's a beauty whenever you get to be the guy who's preaching, right? So we're going to come back to this idea of the church being a chosen race. Because listen, what I want you to notice in Peter is this. Is that God doesn't say, be a chosen race. Become a chosen race. You should do what a chosen race does. He says, you are a chosen race. You are a people from among all peoples. Right? He didn't say you should do this. He says, this is what you are. And so as we look forward, and the rest of the time that we have together this morning is, what I want to do is this. I want to ask and answer this question. If this is what we are as a church, regardless of where we are, this is what we are. Right? Regardless of where a church is located, in an urban core, in a suburban area, in a rural outskirts, in other nations, in other countries, under other jurisdictions, laws, kings, or presidents, no matter where they are, this is what we are then if this is what we are, what does it look like if the church progressively is in the process of becoming what they are? 
Guess what we all are in the process of doing, right? right? Even, for, even us individually, as Christians, our sanctification, our growth in Christ-likeness is a process of us becoming what we already are in Christ. And the same is true of a church. We're becoming, we're maturing as a church into what we already are. So what would that look like in a church that was becoming what they already are as a chosen race? Let me give you three things. First one is this. First thing is this. It would be a place where there is an erosion of elitism. An erosion of elitism. If you've had a fifth grade science class, you probably know what erosion is, right? It's the process by which water removes soil. And listen, as enough water removes enough soil, you know what it does? It creates an entirely new landscape. Right, when you look at the Grand Canyon, you see how that, that, that Colorado River has been cutting through that countryside over years after year after year. And it's dug this massive canyon that craters beneath the surface of the earth. Right, it's removed so much soil. And listen, in a, a church that's becoming what they are as a chosen race, we are a, there's an erosion of elitism. Right? The, the, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the person, of, in, in the person of Jesus Christ, the power and activity of the Holy Spirit is slowly washing away all of our elitism and it's creating a new landscape in those particular communities. It's eroding elitism. You know what elitism is? It's the belief or an attitude that individuals who form a select group of people with certain ancestry or intrinsic qualities or high intellect, they're really smart or they're really wealthy or they have a certain special skills like Liam Neeson, you know, or experiences that they're more likely to be constructed to society as a whole and therefore deserve greater influence, greater authority than those around them. In other words, there's a class of elites, whether they be intellectual elites, socioeconomic elites, racial elites, right, gender elites, certain select skills that make them an elite person. That's what elitism is. And listen, elitism gets eroded by the chosenness of God's people. See, a church that operates as a chosen race, he's becoming a chosen race, that elitism gets washed downstream. But elitism can flourish in a church where people believe that they're not chosen people, but choice people. And I've been in churches like that, where people believe they're choice people, not chosen people. Anybody in here love a good steak? Right? Maybe you're a vegetarian and you're like, I don't touch meat. So, I'll pray for you. I'm just kidding. We want you back. Please come back. Um, but listen, love a good steak. But if you go to the grocery store, right? You go to Kroger or go to Costco or someplace, and you're searching for um, a good piece of meat, right? You're going to find three different grades of meat there at the grocery store. You're going to find the USDA stamps, all the meat that comes off the, the slaughtering house floor from the cows that are killed across our nation every year with three different grades. Right, that's when you're like, is that really necessary? Right, select, choice, and prime. Right, select the lowest grade of meat. 
Okay, and so it's not usually not super tender, and it's not very flavorable because it's the most lean. It doesn't have a whole lot of marbling within the meat, and so there's not a whole lot of fat in it. So it's the most lean, might be the most healthy for you, uh, but it's the le- least flavorful and the least tender. Whereas choice is kind of the second cut of meat. Okay, it's got a little bit more marbling and it's much more tender. And prime, prime is the highest cut of meat. Okay, it's got. It's, it's the marbling is more diversified within the, the cut of meat, and it's the tenderest cut that you can have. Now listen, what the statistics tell us is this, that only 3% of the meat that comes from cows across our nation every year is classified by the USDA as prime. 3%. That's why prime rib is prime rib, and it's expensive. 3%. All right? Choice, and, choice is about 50%. And select is about 40 some odd percent. Okay? Now listen. Those of us in Western American culture, you may have enough humility to think, oh, I'm not prime. I'm not the 3%, right? Elite. But you also don't see yourself as select. <laughs> right? You see yourself as choice. I've got something to offer. It tastes pretty good. Pretty tender. I've got something to offer. And in churches where people see themselves as a choice people and not a chosen people, elitism flourishes. It flourishes. Listen, I was in a church like that. I served as a student pastor in a church like that in central Louisiana. It was a first, it was a historic first Baptist church. In an area of town that over the years had the demographic had changed. And so you had all the majority culture of white suburban middle class who were driving into that kind of downtown area in order to continue to attend that First Baptist Church, but the church had become more diversified around the church. So there was all kinds of, of, of dark colored skinned people living around there, black and brown colored skinned people living around them. And as a student ministry, Right? God impressed upon my heart that, hey, listen, why are, why are we, yes, we, we want to reach the kids who are on the outskirts, but why are we neglecting those kids who are in our own backyard? But there were many in the church who said, well, there's a mission just down the street for them. Hmm. In fact, a mission we started for them, for those people. Because those people were not welcome at their church because they were the choice people. There was a sense of elitism about them. And listen, I, I, got, I got chewed out more in 18 months of ministry in that church than I have the rest of the 18 years of ministry in every other church that I've been in. Because they were a choice people. But if you understand yourself as a chosen people, you recognize there's no room for elitism. There's no room for it. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God tells Israel, listen to what he says to them. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Here's why, he says in verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love upon you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. 
and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He doesn't say it was because you were the most numerous people. It was because you were the most moral people. He doesn't say it was because you were the highest cut of humanity, the highest grade that he could find. That's not what he says. In other words, there was nothing in and of you, nothing about you that led the Lord to set his affection upon you and choose you, that the Lord loves you because the Lord loves you. There was nothing about you. It was everything about him. He loves you because he loves you. Listen, whenever you, when you wrap your mind around that reality, that God did not look down at, through the quarters of time and see that I would be such a good, upstanding, righteous citizen of my community, so God chose me for himself. No, that all God saw when he looked down the quarters of time was my utter unworthiness, but that his love set his affection upon me to make me worthy. That all my worthiness comes from him. There's none that comes from me. That's what it means to be a chosen people. You see, one of the ways you know you get this, that you wrap your mind and heart around this, is that you no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. See, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. He says, From now on, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So, because we no longer regard Jesus according to the flesh, we don't regard people according to the flesh either. So what does it mean to regard someone according to the flesh? It means you assign value to them on the basis of their worldly standards of power, wealth, influence, fashion, how they dress, what they drive, where they live, how they look, how put together they are, how respectable, like we talked about last week, how respectable of a sinner they might be. Rather than being a despicable sinner, they're a respectable sinner. We judge them according to those standards. Listen, and what that is, is this. It's really kind of an evolutionistic perspective on people. The survival of the fittest. They rise to the top. They should have more authority. They should have more power. They should have more say. They should have more influence. In his book entitled Onward, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel, Russell Moore writes these words. He says, The kingdom of God turns the Darwinist narrative of the survival of the fittest upside down. Listen to what he says. When a church honors and cares for the vulnerable, the weak, the outcast among us, we're not showing charity. It's not charity, he says. We are simply recognizing the way the world really works, at least in the long run. He says the child with Down syndrome on the fifth row from the back in your church, he's not a ministry project. He's a future king of the universe. The immigrant woman who scrubs toilets every day on hands and knees and can barely speak enough English to sing along with your praise courses, she's not a problem to be solved. She's a future queen of the cosmos, a joint heir with Christ. He says the first step to cultural influence is not to contextualize to the present, but to contextualize to the future. And the future is awfully strange even to us. In other words, we think about what things will be and then we try to bring those back into the present. As opposed to trying to reform our ways of thinking to the present. We look forward to what God will do in Christ. And we begin to operate as such as a church, becoming 
what we are. Seeing everyone, no matter skin color, class, in regards to their set of skills, experiences, or education levels, as future kings and queens, as joint heirs with Christ, as brothers and sisters, because the landscape has been changed in a chosen race kind of church. And what that leads us to do is to repent of our prejudices. Listen, let me just be real clear. There's a difference between preferences and prejudices. There are certain things that are just cultural preferences, right? Like, I like my house to be kept a certain way. My wife likes the house to be kept a certain way. Right? But you know what? Cleanliness, being next to godliness, is nowhere in the Bible. <laughs> might be a personal or cultural preference, but it's not in the Scriptures. Right? Even though we tell our middle school kids that when they go to camp. Right, there are certain cultural preferences that we can redeem and even rejoice over, but there are, there are cultural prejudices that we must repent of as a chosen race kind of people. And before you, before you raise your hand and say, I don't have any, you might think for just a moment. Let me ask you a question. What, is, what era of human history would you most like to live in? For me, it would have been a day before technology. Yeah, come on. Go out and work the fields, plow the fields. Like technology has done some great things for us. But go out and plow the fields, hard day's work, bring your kids out there with you, teach them the value of labor. Right? You're working, working, working. You come in, you're exhausted from a day's labor. You lay your head down at night, you thank God for his provision. Right? Go back into the 1700s, 1800s, but you know what? There is not a single African-American individual who would say, I want to live in the 17 or 1800s. Not a single one. See, we all have blind spots and prejudices that have to be dealt with. Don't know where yours are. Know where mine are. At least some of them. And God continues to expose them. In a chosen race kind of church, there'll be an erosion of elitism. The last two, I promise, will be much shorter. Second, not only would there be an erosion of elitism, but there would also be a place where ministry is a two-way street. You ever been in a city that you were unfamiliar with, like trying to navigate the downtown area? It's like a nightmare, right? Before Google Maps, okay? <laughs> and like you took a, some of you are like, there was a day before Google Maps? But you took a wrong turn on a one-way street. Have I ever been there? Took a wrong, like when you're driving into the country, right? There are no rules, by the way, on roads in other countries. Not like they are here in many places. So there's people just going everywhere, right? It's just chaos and confusing. But if you ever tried to drive against the flow of traffic on a one-way street, you know that you're in trouble, right? Because everything is running against you, okay? And listen, there are many churches and many Christians including myself at times, who view ministry as a one-way street. In other words, ministry always travels in one lane and it moves from where the resources are, where the skill and experience and education is, to where it's not. That's where ministry just moves that one direction. So we can only learn from people who are more educated than us. We can only 
can be mentored by people who have more experience than us. Right? It just flows in a one-way street. It doesn't flow back in the other direction. Okay? So we don't see the value of the ways in which those with less education, less experience, less resources can minister to those with more, can teach those with more, things that we can learn from them. Russell Moore in that same book, listen to what he says again. He says, what if our churches weren't divided up by the same economic and racial and political and generational categories that would bind us together even if Jesus were not alive? In other words, does Jesus being alive really make a difference in the way that churches come together? He says, would it mean in your, what would it mean in your church if a minimum wage janitor were mentoring the multimillionaire executive of the restaurant where he cleans toilets because the janitor or the mentor has the spiritual wisdom. He's a man of prayer. He loves his family. He's raised his children well. He has the spiritual wisdom that his boss, his protege needs. It would look awfully strange, but it would look no stranger than a crucified Nazarene governing the universe. See, in a chosen race kind of church, ministry flows two ways. Listen, the last couple of years, we've had the privilege as a church to help support interns in Port Shepston, South Africa. And through one of our partners, Latitude Global Leadership Communities. Um, Keith West, the president, founder of that organization, his wife Kimberly, now members of our church. I'm so glad they're here with us, serving here at Redeemer and integrating with our people. Uh, but I've had the chance to go with Keith the last two years to South Africa and teach and train people. First year we trained on mentorship. Last year we trained some on leadership. Listen, as we trained on mentorship, we had all kinds of content that we were bringing, right? Coming from the educated West, going to the under-resourced parts of the world, bringing training, resources. We're sending money. You have sent money to help support some of these interns. And one of the interns that you've sent money to help support is a young man by the name of Filani. And Filani runs a surf school for young boys coming out of the townships, the impoverished townships around his city. And Filani has been through massive amounts of suffering personally. The, just the least of it, like his, all of his equipment at one point was vandalized or stolen as it was set up there on the beach. He's got wetsuits, he's got surfboards, and he's teaching these young men how to surf. Right? He's praying with them, discipling them, investing in them, teaching them this skill that they never would have learned otherwise. And listen, Keith showed me this picture of Fulani last week. He's in the blue back there, right? With his face just lit up as he pushes that young boy onto the wake so he can ride it into the shore. And you can see, you can see in this picture what Keith said to me last week. Hey man, this is a picture of mentoring. And listen, I want you to know that when I saw that picture last week, like all the content that I could prepare on mentoring, all the resources you might be able to bring to bear to instruct and teach, are kind of, for me, thrown out the window when I see this. Because this awakens something in me to disciple and mentor others that even, the, I think, the most rousing sermon on discipleship and mentorship for me could not awaken. Because I see someone who's hands-on, pushing him off and celebrating him as he kind of goes out of the nest. That's what mentorship is. It's cheer, it's hands-on, investment, teaching, pushing forward, celebrating the wins whenever they come along. 
And when I, listen, if I have the chance to go back with Keith again this year, I want you to know there's something this young man could teach me. Okay, he's probably in his early 20s, I'm in my early 40s. Some of you may not think I look that old. And I appreciate that, I really do. Some of you are like, I thought you were older than that. But this young man has something to teach me. Because ministry is not a one-way street in a chosen race kind of church. It's a two-way street. Which leads us to think about this as we try to leverage our resources, our time, energy, and talents to go into the community and look for places where there are pockets of need. I want you to know, church, that we do not go in there as people bringing charity. We go in there recognizing the way that things will be in the future and seeing the value and contribution that people who live below the poverty line are able to make to the kingdom of God even though they can't write the same kind of checks that we can write. They can teach and instruct us things in in ways that we can never learn from each other because they've experienced things that you've never experienced, that I've never experienced. In a chosen race kind of church, ministry is a two-way street. See, if we no longer regarded people according to the flesh, then we would not assume that the majority white upper middle class folks are the ones who minister while our minority black and brown skinned brothers and sisters are the ones from, are from, are people from economically depressed communities, the ones who receive the ministry. That's how we If we're to be honest, we tend to think that way. But not in a chosen race kind of church. Third and finally, a chosen race kind of church will be a place that has a powerful witness in the world. A powerful witness in the world. Look at what Peter says in verse 9. The latter part of verse 9. He says, the reason that we are this chosen race, the purpose, you see that? See that statement there in verse 9? The purpose for which God has chosen us and is forming for Himself a people from among all peoples. It's so that, anytime you see that word that in the Bible, oftentimes it indicates some kind of purpose. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. In other words, God says, the purpose of my election of you is for your proclamation about me. You're saying something about me. Right? Your chosenness is not for you. Not for you and you alone. But to say something about me to them. To the world around you. And listen, a chosen race kind of church upholds the glory and the beauty and the majesty of Jesus. And you know why? Because a chosen race kind of church brings people together from all kinds of backgrounds that would never be bound together for any other explainable reason. Let me ask you a question. What if in our churches, in this church, that what drives people apart in the culture, what drives people, segregates and separates people in the culture, there be something bigger than that in the church that binds them together. That you'd have Republicans and Democrats worshiping alongside each other on Sunday mornings. 
maybe even pastoring together. That you'd have poor and rich, young and old. See, what tends to drive people in our culture into their kind of ghettos that would bring us into a gospel-centered and oriented community bound together by the blood of Jesus. What would that say to the world? What kind of witness will we be proclaiming by the excellencies of this God who has chosen us for Himself? It would have a powerful witness in the world. And listen, in a day, in a day in which more and more people are recognizing the hostility, the division, the strife in our nation. What if God were to raise up churches that were becoming what they are? What if He were to start here in this one, in this community, so that as our community becomes more and more diverse, that we as a church will become more and more Diverse. So when we have neighbors who move in, they don't look like us. Maybe they have tattoos from their cuffs of their shirts all the way up across their chest and down the other side. Would we think to invite them to church? If they're a different skin color than we are, if they speak a different language in their home than we do, would we think to invite them the church? Or will we automa- did we automatically dismiss that? And if we did, what kind of witness would that be to the neighbors across the street from you who avoid them like the plague? And whenever they ask, what is it? I've known you for five years. I know the way you think. I know we've talked, had conversations. Why are you befriending them? Why are you inviting them? And you can say because there's something that binds us together that's bigger than what drives us apart. That is a powerful witness. God says, here's what you are. And if we were becoming what we are, it would erode all of our elitism, we'd repent of our prejudices, it would open up two lanes of ministry to flow back and forth, and we would see the value that people who have less education, less wealth, less experience, less skills than we do can contribute to the kingdom of God as it grows and expands. And it would be a powerful, powerful witness in our city. Would you pray with me this morning as we close for God to make it true here? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your grace and kindness. We thank you that Jesus is indeed big enough to bind us together with people who come from all different backgrounds. That that He is the wrecking ball that breaks down every wall of hostility that would divide us. God, help us to see that through the person of Jesus, that your aim is not merely the normalization of one culture or the replication of one culture but the sanctification of every culture so that we might be able to celebrate and redeem and rejoice in
cultural preferences, but repent of all of our cultural prejudices. Help us to open up two lanes of ministry so that we don't see it only flowing in one direction. But we learn from those who are younger than us, with less experience than us, and we receive from those who have less resources than we do. Because we're willing to put our pride aside and be humble, teachable, and open. Father, may you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, lead us as we continue in the process of becoming who we are as a chosen race. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.